All right, you may be seated. Title to our message this morning is The Ruin of Israel and the Riches of the World. Now, there's so much to cover today, so I'm going to remind you quickly where we've been. Recall that the Apostle Paul wants to show us what Jesus is doing right now between his first and his second coming while he's in heaven. Jesus is is not uh, waiting in his corner, waiting for the bell to ring so that he can come back into the fight swinging. He is currently subduing his enemies under his feet right now. As per the passage that we just read, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He will not return until he has accomplished this. Now, last week, we heard the, the first enemy that Jesus put under his feet, namely Satan. We saw that he was the strong man that Jesus bound, Matthew 12, 29, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, Revelation 23. So what we can conclude from that is that this is not Satan's world. Uh, The nations are right now the inheritance of of King Jesus. Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. So in this age, it's not that Satan's kingdom is growing more powerful, it's that Christ is. Remember, he promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Now this morning, um, we're going to see how first century Israel was Satan's greatest ally in his war against Christ and the church. Multiple times in Scripture, Jesus identifies Israel as being under the control of Satan. Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. John chapter 8, verse 44. If you look in the book of Revelation in chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 9, the Jews of this generation were specifically called a synagogue of Satan. 1 Thessalonians 2.15 said that the Jews of that generation, they were those who opposed all mankind. As such, Israel was, bar none, the most wicked nation on earth in the first century. Not only for rejecting and murdering their long-prophesied Messiah, but for seeking to destroy his church. So therefore, King Jesus destroyed Jerusalem. He put them under his feet at their fall in 70 AD. Now, now make no mistake, next to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fall of Jerusalem is perhaps the most significant event in world history to this date. Not only did the destruction uh, forever mark the end of the old age, an end to temple worship, to the sacrifices, to the priesthood, to the theocracy. Her destruction turned out to be the greatest blessing to the world. Paul specifically says this in Romans chapter 11, verse 12, that Israel's great sin of rejecting the Messiah meant riches for the world. It meant that the world would be reconciled to God. And her destruction meant that the persecution by the Jews would end. But even more, it means that Christ has taken the kingdom away from 
the Jews, and he's given it to every tribe and tongue and nation under heaven, Matthew 21, 43. The gospel has now gone global. Christ has put Israel under his feet. He left Israel's house desolate so that the world would receive the greatest blessing conceivable. So here is our big idea this morning. When Christ left Israel's house desolate in AD 70, i.e. he put her under his feet, he then unleashed an inconceivable blessing on the world. So let's see how this works itself out. Let's begin with our doctrine. Now, what I hope that, I hope that you, you sense from this series that as we're looking at other passages this morning, we're doing so in order to unpack that verse in 1 Corinthians 15, 25. When Paul says that Christ must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet, it begs the question, well, what are the enemies that Christ is putting under his feet? And 1 Corinthians 15 doesn't indicate it. And so God has given us all of Scripture to help unpack this verse. Other Scriptures tell us what these enemies are. Now, with that being said, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 24. Here, we're going to see how Christ prophesied that Jerusalem would be put under his feet in A.D. 70. Now, truly, Matthew's gospel is an indictment against the Jewish nation for their rejection of Jesus Christ. So, a quick overview. Uh, when John the Baptist began preaching in Matthew chapter 3, he, he told the Jews that the axe is already laid at the root of the tree, meaning God is about to cut you down. Jesus told them later in chapter 11, verse 24, he says, I tell you that it'll be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than it will be for you. Jesus then entered the temple near the end of his ministry in chapter 21, verse 23, and he gives like this all-encompassing parable of the the tenants in the vineyard. And the parable was meant to basically sum up the whole Old Testament. How the Jews constantly killed the prophets that God sent. How they would ultimately kill God's only son. Chapter 21, verses 33 through 39. And because of this, Jesus tells them in verse 30, 43 of chapter 21, therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a people producing its fruit. So then we arrive at chapter 23. Jesus summarizes in one place all of the wickedness of the Jews of that particular generation. J. Marcellus Kick says here this, quote, in this terrible chapter, Christ like a lawyer, sums up the crimes which the leaders of this nation have committed. In a series of woes, Christ denounces the scribes and the Pharisees as hypocrites, verse 13. Blind guides, verse 16. Fools, verse 17. 
whited sepulchers, verse 27, serpents, verse 33, generation of vipers, verse 33. He accuses them of shutting the kingdom against men, verse 13. He accuses them of extortion, verse 25, of false teaching, verses 16 through 22, of lack of judgment, mercy, and faith, verses 23 through 24, end quote. So in all, Jesus pronounces seven woes, a a number of completion, seven curses against this generation, and then he pronounces this most dreadful judgment. Just look at chapter 23, verses 35 through 38. Here's the judgment. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the righteous Able to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See. Your house is left to you desolate. And that, outside of the final judgment, that's the worst sentence that's pronounced in the New Testament. Um, All the righteous blood um, from Abel to the last prophet, Zechariah, was going to fall on that generation. And so indeed, without equivocation, Jerusalem of that generation was the most wicked city on earth earth. What was the sentence that was coming against them? Their complete annihilation by the Romans in 70 AD. That's what Jesus is talking about. And so now we arrive at chapter 24. Look with me at verse 1. Jesus left the temple was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Okay, so I imagine the conversation like this. His disciples, they heard the dreadful sentence that he just pronounced. See, your house is left to you desolate. And, and they just couldn't take it in. Um, they, they pointed to the temple in essence saying, Surely, Master, you, you do not mean that this temple, this one, will become desolate. And then Jesus responds in the clearest of terms. Look at verse 2. You see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Now, what follows in Verses 3 through 35 are the most, among the most controversial verses within evangelicalism. Um, and, and what I'm about to offer you may be a major paradigm shift for some of you. The reason why that is is because over the last 150 plus years, America has been inundated with um, dispensational theology. To be evangelical in America is nearly synonymous with being dispensational. And what dispensational theology does with this passage is essentially puts 
all of these prophecies that Jesus is about to speak into the future. Especially the abomination of desolation, the great tribulation, the sun and the moon being darkened, and the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Dispensationalism says that's all future. And what I want to propose to you this morning is that all of these things, up to verse 35, have already happened in AD 70 at the destruction of Jerusalem. I suppose that may sound strange, but what's actually strange is the modern view. What I'm about to teach is the view of the great teachers of the past, such as the Puritan John Owens, 1616 to 1683, Jonathan Edwards, 1703 to 1758, and the late R.C. Sproul. 1939 to 2017. There are two key verses that unlock the meaning of this passage. And the first key verse is found in verse 3. Here the disciples ask three questions that set up Jesus' answer in verses 4 and following. They ask this, tell us, Jesus, tell us, when will these things be? Meaning, when will the temple be destroyed? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? So they ask three questions. Now, from their perspective, they're actually asking the same question in three different ways. See, they assumed that the only way that the temple could be destroyed is if it was the end of the world. Calvin says this here. Quote, The disciples had considered from childhood that the temple would stand to the end of time and had the idea deeply rooted in their minds that they had not thought that the temple could fall down as long as the world's created order stood. So as soon as Christ said the temple would perish, at once their minds turned to the end of the world. They linked the coming of Christ and the end of the world with the overflow of the temple, the overthrow of the temple as inseparable events. So they saw all three of these things happening at the same time. That was the presupposition behind their question. And so the disciples were confused. In the very asking of the question, they linked the destruction of Jerusalem to the end of the world and Christ's return. But Christ is not confused. In his answer, he actually separates the questions. He begins in verses 4 through 35 in answering when Jerusalem would be judged and the temple destroyed. So that's the first key verse, verse 3. That brings us to the second key verse. Look at verse 34. Now, Jesus speaks these words after he tells them all the signs that would precede the destruction of Jerusalem and the horror of the fall of Jerusalem. He says this in verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, what does... This phrase, this generation, mean? It means 
that generation. It meant that group of contemporary people that lived in Jesus' time. That's how it's used throughout Matthew's gospel without exception. Matthew eleven sixteen, twelve forty one, twelve forty two, twelve forty five. It always means the the contemporary group of people. Look, just look back at chapter twenty three. Verses 35 and 36, right after Jesus pronounces these seven woes, he then says that the righteous blood of Abel will fall on this generation. Verse 36, truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. He clearly means the contemporary people that live during his time. Now, there is no sufficient argument either linguistically or theologically, that would force us to adopt a different meaning just less than a chapter later. Therefore, this generation in chapter 24, verse 34, means the contemporary people that Jesus was speaking to. In other words, as one author says, the events which Jesus speaks of in this passage, verse 4 through 31, will be fulfilled in AD 70, exactly one generation from the date that he made the pronouncement. Well, then what about the end of the world? Didn't you say that Jesus separated the disciples' questions? Yes. So beginning in verse 36 to the end of chapter 25, then he begins to talk about the end of the world and the second coming. But since our focus is on Jesus putting his enemies under his feet in history, we're only going to focus on verses 4 through 31. And regarding these events and these verses, Jesus specifically says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Now, it is impossible to explain everything in chapter 24, in a thorough manner with the time that we have left. So I've provided a cheat sheet for you in your bulletin that you can review at your own leisure. We're just going to hit the highlights. I'd be happy to go over any parts that you don't understand in next week's Q&A Sunday School. So remember, in verses 4 through 31, Jesus is answering The question that the disciples asked in verse 3, when will these things, namely the desolation of Israel, take place? Okay, so we're going to skip over verses 5 through 13, which talks about false Christ, wars and rumors of wars, famines, earthquakes, persecutions. Those are the signs that lead up to the destruction of Jerusalem. And you can um, check those out on your cheat sheet later. They're easily, easily seen to have taken place um, between uh, before AD 70. So I just want to look at five events that Jesus said happened um, by 70 AD. Five events that Jesus said happened by 70 AD. The first event is that the gospel will be proclaimed in all the world. The gospel will be proclaimed in all the world. Look with me at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now, certainly, this couldn't have happened before 70 AD, right? Well, remember, our key verse Jesus said in verse 34, 
he said that all these things would take place in this generation. So then how do we reconcile this? Well, here's one key. The word world here in verse 14 often refers to not the whole world, Western and Eastern Hemisphere, but the Roman Empire, the known world at the time. That's how um, Scripture, Luke chapter 2, verse 1, Acts chapter 11, verse 28, and Acts chapter 24, verse 5 uses it. The world means the Roman Empire. So the nations in view here are those that belong to Rome. And Scripture elsewhere tells us that these nations, in fact, already did hear the gospel in the time of the apostles. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, verse 23. He says, The gospel has, past tense, been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. Romans chapter 10, verse 18. Paul says again, Their words have gone to all the ends of the earth. Several other places could be cited. The point is, is that the entire Roman Empire heard the gospel before AD 70. The second event that happened at 70 AD was the abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation. Look at verse 15. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel... Standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now, our dispensational friends and brothers, they put this event in the future, describing a, a forthcoming Antichrist who will enter a future temple and commit some gross act of idolatry, such as declaring himself to be God or the like. But again, the problem is that Jesus said in verse 34, that this desolation would happen in this generation that was now living. So this already happened. Um, well, then what is it? Well, we don't have to guess because Luke tells us in the parallel account that, that we read at the beginning of our time together. Luke 21.20 says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, the Roman armies led by Titus, then you know that it's, desolation has come near. When, when, when pagan symbols of worship were carried by these Roman armies, they were brought into the holy city, every religious Jew would have considered that a sacrilege, an abomination. So Jesus is warning here that when his elect see this happening, when they see the armies surrounding Jerusalem, her time of wrath has come. And so he gives them specific instructions in verses 16 through 20, telling them what to do, how they should respond. That brings us to the third event that happened um, in 70 AD, the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation. Look at verse 21. For then there will be a great Tribulation such has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Now, we know this is not a global tribulation. How do, how do we know that? Well, look at verse 16. 
It says, when these things take place, those who are in Judea should flee to the mountains. So in other words, this was a tribulation that you could escape from. It was um, confined to a local area. But Pastor Josh, Jesus says that this event is so terrible that it will never be equaled. Yeah, one million Jews died, but how does that compare with the global flood or the Nazi Holocaust? Well, we have to make correct comparisons. Remember what Jesus said about this generation, that all of the blood from righteous Abel to Zechariah would fall on that generation. That can be said about no other generation in the history of the world. And if you want a taste of how bad it was, just go read Josephus' history on the fall of Jerusalem, and you will sense the wrath of God falling on that generation. The destruction of the temple was the end of God's covenant with Israel as a nation. He tore the kingdom away from her. Matthew 21, 43. It, It wasn't just the amount of dead bodies that were present. It was God divorcing Israel covenantally. Indeed, no other tribulation can be compared to this one because at 70 AD, God put an end to the Old Testament world. That brings us to the fourth event that happened at 70 AD. The decreation of Israel. The decreation of Israel. Look with me at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Now again, our... our, Our precious dispensational brothers will take this verse and they say, well, that's certainly at the end of the world. That's in the future. But again, look at the context. Look at what it says at the beginning of verse 29. He says, immediately, this is going to happen after the tribulation of those days, not 2,000 years later. Well, how in the world could this have already happened? How could the sun and the moon stop giving light in 70 AD? Quickly turn with me to Isaiah chapter 13. We let the Bible interpret the Bible. And this language is used, this decreation language is used, the sun not giving its light, the stars falling, in other places where God judges nations. Now, look at the beginning of Isaiah 13, notice the subtitle. It says, the judgment of Babylon. So now he's going to describe what the judgment of Babylon is like. Look at verse 10. For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. Same language that that Jesus uses about Jerusalem in Matthew 24. And God uses this in another place uh, when he judges Egypt in Ezekiel 32, 7 through 8. The sun will not give its light, the moon will not shine, the stars will fall. Now, this is symbolic. Consider if you were in the Ukraine right now. 
Imagine if your country is under attack. Buildings are collapsing around you. Death and destruction are everywhere. Chaos and confusion are reigning. Would it not feel like the sun and the moon were falling out of the sky? I mean, it's like a chicken little moment. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. That's what it's like. God describes a nation falling like the the elements falling out of the sky. The fifth event that happened at 70 AD was the coming of the Son of Man. The coming of the Son of Man. So let's go back to Matthew 24, and I think that this is perhaps the most controversial verse in this passage. Verse 30, then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Now, certainly this did not happen in 70 AD, right? Well, remember, verse 34 tells us, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these signs are fulfilled. How? How did Jesus come back in 70 AD? Well, again, the Old Testament uses this exact same language whenever God judges a nation. You could turn there if you want, but in Isaiah 19, 1, when he judges Egypt, this is what he says. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud, and he comes to judge Egypt. There's other places that can be cited as well. When God is judging a nation, he's coming down on the clouds. Not literally, but symbolically. Again, the sky is falling. Now, what's interesting about this particular verse is that two notable atheists in the past, uh, Bertrand Russell and Christopher Hitchens, have looked at this verse in in Matthew uh, 24, 30, and they say, see, Jesus is a false prophet because they understood at at the very least that Jesus meant that this was happening in 70 AD. They at least understood that. But they said, Jesus didn't return. He didn't come back. Well, they have the second part wrong. Um, They misunderstand what Jesus meant. Jesus isn't teaching that he literally physically showed up in the clouds. He's saying that the destruction of Jerusalem wasn't ultimately the work of Titus the Roman. It was ultimately the work of Christ, the reigning king, judging the nation. He's saying that the desolation of Jerusalem was his work. It was a sign of his coming in judgment as he was putting Jerusalem under his feet. If you want to mark this for later, just look up Matthew 26, 64. When he's on trial before the Sanhedrin, they say, are you the Christ? We adjure you. And he says, I am. And from now on, you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. He's saying, you think you're judging me, but I'm the one who's going to be judging you. You're going to see me come on the clouds when Jerusalem falls. Now, in summary, this dreadful prophecy was fulfilled in 70 AD. Ethnic Israel was excommunicated for its apostasy. 
That synagogue of Satan, that great harlot, that brutal persecutor of the church was put under the feet of the reigning and risen Christ. So that's our doctrine. When Christ desolated Israel's house in 70 AD, he was putting her under his feet. So then let's look at our our duty. We have three of them. And our first duty is just to simply consider how Matthew 24 fits with whatever you believe about eschatology. So ask yourself, how does Matthew 24 fit with your view of the end times? Because many who who reject the idea of the, the global triumph of the gospel point to this passage and they say, Well, the world is getting worse and worse. Look, there's still a great tribulation that is coming. So so how can the nations know war no more? Well, the answer is, is that the great tribulation is not in the future. It's in the past. The abomination of desolation is not in the future. It's in the past. These things took place when um, Christ put an end to the Old Testament world in 70 AD. So, so Matthew 24 cannot be used as evidence that the world is getting worse and worse. If anything, it is evidence that Christ is keeping his promises and he's putting his enemies under his feet. That brings us to our second duty, which is to comfort ourselves. How does this scripture comfort us? Well, I think that many evangelicals have the idea that after Christ died and, and rose again, that, that he's simply done fighting for his church until he returns at his second coming. But nothing could be further from the truth. Consider how Christ's church was in grave danger the very moment that Christ ascended into heaven. One only has to read the book of Acts to see the danger that they were in, um, how the disciples were arrested, Acts chapter 4, verse 3, beaten, Acts chapter 5, verse 40, stoned, Acts chapter 7, verse 57, persecuted, chapter 8, verse 1, killed with the sword, chapter 12, verse 2. Immediately after Jesus left the earth, the church was vastly outnumbered. They were outsmarted. They were outresourced. There was but a small remnant of the church in the world. And the whole Jewish nation and the whole Roman Empire was against them. Now, by all accounts, the enemies of the church were 100 times stronger than her. The church should have been swallowed up. She should have been overthrown. But what happened? The Son of Man came on the clouds of judgment. You see, 70 AD wasn't ultimately, we we read history wrong and say, oh, that, that was an act of the Romans. No, they were merely instruments. 70 AD was was ultimately an act of vengeance from Christ our Lord. Don't you remember that one of the main reasons that he destroyed Jerusalem was because they were constantly killing the prophets, stoning those whom he had sent to them. 
Beloved, Christ pounded Jerusalem into dust because she reached out her hand against Christ's anointed lambs. The, the policy of the Jews was simple. Destroy the church. And Christ would not stand for that. And he doesn't stand for it today. Do you see what a, what a comfort that is? In every age of history, the, the church has great and fierce enemies that we are dealing with. And naturally speaking, the power and the strength is always on the side of our persecutors. Yet in every age, Christ rises up and defends his church. So loved ones, ask yourself, what are you anxious about today? What has fear gripped your heart because the future looks uncertain? Look, I'm not preaching pie in the sky. It's true that, that many Christians are put to death today for their hope in Christ. Maybe someday that will be you and, and I. But one thing is invincibly true, that Christ in his perfect timing will rise up and he will defend his own. I mean, look at the history of the world. Every ancient kingdom and empire and monarchy and republic have come to an end. The Babylonians have come to an end. The Assyrians, the Persians, the Romans have all been overthrown. But the church remains. Why? Because Jesus Christ is her king. He is the one who's ruling and defending us. He is the one who's restraining and conquering all his and our enemies. You and I do not have to fear what is going on in the world today. For 2,000 years, our risen Christ has been rising up and destroying his and our enemies. So that brings us then to our last duty. Our last duty is simply to rebuke what, what needs to be rebuked. Do you know why? Do you know what the reason was for the majority of the Jews rejecting Christ? Do you know what it was specifically that they were rejecting Christ for? Why was it that they stumbled? Because the message of the gospel is so offensive. The religion of Judaism was perverted in Jesus' time. It turned into a religion of self-justification. The Jews knew that they were sinners. But they believed that through the sacrificial system and through their adherence to ceremony, that through those things they could be justified before God. In other words, they were shut out of the kingdom because of their good works, because of their self-righteousness. John Gerstner once said, the main thing between you and God is not so much your sins, it's your damnable good works. Good works keep more people out of heaven than sin does. How can I say that? Because the only type of righteousness that God accepts is perfect righteousness, is spotless righteousness. And so if your good works are not works of perfect righteousness, then they're damnable. 
If you are a good person out of Christ this morning, if you are a good person who does not believe in Christ this morning, you are in a damnable state. That's what the Jews were guilty of. Are you guilty of that? Have you resisted coming to Christ because you think that you're a pretty good person? Dear friend, your good works are are damnable. You're not a good person. You were born wicked. You were born without hope. And no matter what you do, you can never change that. You have a stain that runs deeper than your, your skin. The stain goes all the way down to your soul. And the best deeds that you could ever do could never wash that away. But the blood of Jesus is the lather that you need. Christ is calling to you this morning and he's saying, though your, skin, your sins are like scarlet, I can make them as white as snow. That's the promise for all who would trust in him. Hope in him this morning. Don't be like that proud Jew in the first century who refused to come in him. They, they were cut off. They were, they were damned. They were judged. And, and you will be too if you refuse to come to him. So come to him. Come to him. He won't refuse you. Call on his name. Here's the promise of the scripture that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that you will be saved. So those are our duties. That Number one, we must consider how Matthew 24 does not prove that the world is getting worse because these prophecies have already happened. Two, we must comfort ourselves with the truth that Christ is still defending his church today. And three, rebuke yourself if you think your good works will make you acceptable to God. So let's look finally then at our delight this morning. And what's amazing here about this event in 70 AD is that it unleashed an inconceivable blessing upon the world. Christ crushed Israel in order to bring the riches of the gospel to sinners like you and me. That's what Paul says in Romans 11, verse 11. So I ask you, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. The fall of Jerusalem was a blessing to the whole world. And beloved, it's specifically a blessing to you this morning. You were made an heir of salvation. You were a wild olive branch that was grafted into the vine. And it wasn't because you you were better or more righteous than those wicked Jews in the first century. Quite the contrary. It was your sins that nailed the Lord Jesus to the tree. 1 Peter 2, 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Think about the difference between you and that first century Jew. Did those Jews harden their hearts against Christ? Yes. 
How many times have you done that? Did those Jews walk in self-righteousness and pride and arrogance? Did they trample on others? Did they live selfish and hypocritical and God-ignoring lives? Yes, yes, yes. How many times have you done that? Everything these Jews did deserve this punishment. But we are likewise guilty of these very things. If not with our hands, then certainly with our hearts. They killed the prophets. How many times have we hated and wanted the prophetic word just to be silenced, to shut up? They did good works to be seen by others. How often do we do the same? They scrupulously tithed mint and dill and cumin while neglecting the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and faithfulness. Loved ones, how many times have you just gone through the motions of your religious life and you failed from the heart to show mercy? We're we're the same. Those Jews put on an outward appearance but were inwardly full of uncleanness. They appeared to be righteous to others on the outside, but inside they were hypocritical. How often do you live a double life where you... Come here and you act like a good Christian and then you you go home and in your secret time you act like the devil. You're just like them. You see at every point, it's a mirror. This This is us. And Christ crushed them and destroyed them with the express purpose to bring salvation to you. To you, loved ones, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall by no means. Through their trespass, salvation has come. Loved ones, you belong to Christ this morning, not because you are any better than they. You belong to Christ this morning solely and entirely because of the free grace of Jehovah God. You belong to Christ this morning purely because he has shown his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's what we should take away from Matthew 24. But for the grace of God, there go I. I, I run into the flames. That's me. But for, the, but for Christ shedding his blood for me, I would have suffered that condemnation. But for his redeeming love, his free election, I would have been cut off. I would have been counted among those who suffered such a fate. Oh, but friends, rejoice in your risen Savior this morning. Rejoice that you have received the grace of God. Rejoice that you have been counted among his people. Rejoice that that dark fate is not waiting for you, but you belong to the Savior. Consider these triumphant words by Charles Wesley. We're going to sing these in a moment. Jesus the Savior reigns, the God of truth and love. When he has purged our stains, he took his seat above. He sits at God's right hand till all his foes submit. 
and bow down to his command and fall beneath his feet. His kingdom cannot fail. He rules over earth and heaven. The keys of death and hell are to our Jesus given. Lift up your heart. Lift up your voice. Rejoice again, I say. Rejoice. Let's pray. Oh God.